The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. In 1930, the American novelist Thomas Wolfe wrote, The whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon, is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. Well, 90 years on, that observation is still a pretty miserable one, but also perhaps an increasingly convincing one. We can argue about whether social and economic events over the last hundred years have increased loneliness, even led to an epidemic of loneliness, as some commentators claim, but it's hardly controversial to argue that the events of the last 12 months have induced feelings of painful isolation in countless millions of people as the lockdown has dismantled and perhaps permanently demolished everyday aspects of our social lives. It's the subject of this week's Holy Smoke. Now, that doesn't sound like a very enticing prospect, I admit. But fortunately, my guest, backed by popular demand, is the intriguing and delightful Irish writer Mary Kenny. And I think you'll find that what she has to say will stimulate your imagination and even lift your spirits. Mary, unsurprisingly, loneliness is a subject that you hear discussed quite a lot at the moment because of lockdown. It's not just people saying they're lonely. It's people worrying about other people's loneliness. And I've seen you worry about loneliness on Twitter. I've seen you draw attention to the increased danger of alcoholism during lockdown, but also make more sort of general existential, sometimes rather gloomy comments about the state we're in. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about loneliness, because we've both had plenty of experience of it, but then nearly everybody has. And I think a starting point has to be, what do we mean by loneliness? I was astonished to find an incredibly detailed, really long Wikipedia entry on the subject. And anybody who reads it might recognise one or two of the quotes I'm going to come out with. But as far as Wikipedia is concerned, there's two types of loneliness. It's based on all the research that's been done. One of which is social loneliness, where you just don't see people and you feel miserable as a result. And, And one of which is emotional loneliness, where you don't really feel any connection to people, even if you do meet them. Lockdown kind of combines both. Obviously, you can't see people anyway, or many of us can't see people anyway. But also, it's going to hugely increase the sense of emotional loneliness. These are all constructed categories by social scientists. The word loneliness itself wasn't used in a negative sense until about 1800, thank you, Wikipedia. So I'd just be interested in hearing your thoughts on whether you think loneliness is the great problem in society that we're always being told that it is. There's even now a government project designed to alleviate loneliness, which must have been completely blown to pieces by lockdown. And whether it's increasing now as a result of wider changes in society, technology, the internet, all the disorientating changes in society, and of course, this devastating lockdown. Well, there's, a, there's an academic called Norina Hertz, 
who published a big book on loneliness just before Christmas, which she called The Lonely Century. And it's been very successful and regarded as a very important book in which she suggests that millennials are a very, very lonely generation. She claims that one in five have no friends and that because they've grown up with social media, that they've sort of lost the skills, the face-to-face skills in a way. And I suppose wearing masks, as we have done over the last year or so, must have dehumanized our face-to-face contact even more. She cites a staggering example among older people in Japan committing crimes deliberately so as to be sent to jail so they'd meet other people there, which seems a very extreme measure. But I suppose as Christians, Damien, there are two sides to this. I mean, one is that the loneliness or the solitude imposed on us by lockdown. I remember we can't invite anyone into our house. I mean, even a repairman, it has to be some sort of emergency to allow somebody into your house, which is a very unusual historical situation. So we've got that solitude, which I suppose some Christian tradition would say is a very good thing, that you're supposed to contemplate your existential loneliness, the fact that you are this individual and that you can contemplate your sins while you're at it, as it were. But the other side of that is that being a Christian is usually very much part of being a community. I get mass online, but it's not the same as actually going to the church where you see this group of people that you're used to seeing sometimes and you feel part of a fellowship and a community. I mean, I even missed terribly when they stopped playing music and they stopped playing hymns. And I felt that that joining in a hymn was a wonderful kind of collective. uh, I think it depends on your parish, Mary. I think it depends on your parish. I think in many parishes, people breathed a sigh of relief when the um, communal (laughs) worship sessions ended. But you're quite right, of course, about the social networks, the social solidarity, and also what sociologists call the plausibility structure, that which helps you believe in difficult things, provided by a parish. But these things were fragmenting anyway, and we talk about this almost every week on Holy Smoke, the fact that the parish system in both the Catholic Church and the Church of England has been slowly breaking down over decades and now is accelerating hugely. The Church of England has just reported that it expects something like 20% of people not to come back to church. So already, I think, the tremendously all-enveloping sense of identity that being Catholic or belonging to a particularly strong Anglican parish, or for goodness sake, being Jewish or anything else, is beginning to break down because the social groups associated with these identities are no longer there, at least so far as religion is concerned. Lockdown has exacerbated that enormously, to the extent where people aren't even sure that their parish churches are going to be reappearing. I do wonder whether church leaders have paid enough attention to this aspect of their ministry, because I rather wonder whether the clergy have been doing their job, or at least some of them, for a long time in terms of visiting the sick or maintaining social relations with their parishioners. One of the things that's really struck me is how lonely how many clergy are 
and they respond to their parishioners in the way that lonely people do, which is that very often the vicar or the parish priest isn't as accessible as you imagine they might be. They do sometimes shy away from human contact, which makes you think they're in the wrong job. I mean, interestingly, uh, when I was able to, I used to visit my cousin in Paris, uh, who lives in the 15th arrondissement. And uh, as as you know, France is a secular state, and they're very strong on this idea of laïcité. But at the same time, this is going back to the period when the church was in the center of the public square. It had theatrical events of all kinds with the Commedia dell'arte performing on the steps of the cathedral. And of course, it was the great patron of the arts. You went to the church for holy pictures and you'd see people. So I thought, you know, it can be done if you have an energetic group of priests in the parish who really involve people. And I think that's a great Christian calling to do that. But you're right, Damien, we haven't seen enough of that kind of energy. And some of the clergy haven't been doing their job. That's clear. Because I think they're often rather lonely, isolating and even self-isolating people themselves. I do know a lot of priests And it is true of a minority of them. But the reason you can't reach them is not because they're cold and uncaring, though they are in one or two cases, but because they're not good with people. They don't feel comfortable with people. And of course, they live on their own in a way that they didn't 50 years ago. This is true of the Catholic clergy who had fellow priests living in what were big and quite full presbyteries, now empty buildings where they rattle around. And the psychic toll this takes on the clergy I think can be enormous. I remember talking to Father Sean Middleton, fantastic priest who's also a psychotherapist. And I said, why, Sean, do clergy develop such an appetite for pornography online? Because there have been a whole rash of cases involving porn and clergy. And he said, well, I think it's because they'll do something like conduct a big wedding on a Saturday and then they'll feel rather excluded because they can't get married. And then they'll go back to their presbyteries and rattle around in what was a building designed for five or six people, including staff. And there's nobody there, not even a housekeeper. And in the past, I might have hit the bottle. And these days, they might go online and start looking at pornographic sites, partly out of a feeling of anger that they've been left out. And it does raise two interesting things, one of which is the role of social media in exacerbating feelings of loneliness. And there's a big debate about this because it can also obviously make you feel less lonely. But also, I think, the relationship between loneliness and addiction. Because for a certain type of alcoholic, and I was an alcoholic for many years, the drink replaced human company. First of all, it went with human company, and then it became more important than human company. And I've heard alcoholism described very effectively, I think, as the gradual replacement of people by things. Well, now we're in a situation where the people aren't available anyway, and people with addictive personalities, who would certainly include me, now thank God I haven't gone back to the bottle, which I gave up 28 years ago. I won't go into the story, but it was, well, without you, it wouldn't have happened, Mary. So thank you for letting me be alive today. But the connection between isolation, particularly the imposed isolation of lockdown and addictive practices has to be a powerful one. I'm sure we're in a great crisis, really, of loneliness. To take a a longer view, throughout most of human development, people have been literally gregarious. They've been in big groups together. I mean, even looking at movies 
from the 1940s or 50s, and it's a very small detail. But if you have a family portrayed in a movie, for example, you'll find that there are two sisters in a family, and it's normal for them to be sharing a bed. I remember when I was young that you'd visit a family home if there was a big family of five or six. It was absolutely normal for bedrooms to be shared. And so people got, I'm not suggesting anything improper about this at all, but that there was a lot of human activity going on around people a lot of the time. Well, I suppose affluence changed that and it's now normal for every child to have his or her own bedroom for people to have a much more private life in a sense and that probably has some benefits because you can get more thinking more solitude more intellectual development in a way when you have that access to solitude but then the price is that you have more isolation And as you say, Damien, that's been a pattern that's been growing in our culture, but it's simply been amplified and doubled up by the lockdown experience, which has really brought us face to face with our own existential loneliness. I mean, about the priests, there were always been holy men who have been recluses. That is their calling, that they're solitary. But there have always been enormously gregarious priests. Frank O'Connor, the Irish short story writer, a lovely writer of mid-20th century, you know, he wrote a lot of stories about priests. And one of his funnier themes is the priest's housekeeper, who was a really important figure. Now, the priest's housekeeper did everything except a mass herself. She organized everything. She bossed them around. She did this, she did that, she did the other. And sometimes if the priest went astray in some way, sometimes, as you say, it might be with the bottle or it might be with the, the gambling. It could be or could be with sexual elements, of course, too. The housekeeper actually might be blamed she might be told, you should have kept him more in line. So that's a kind of funny aspect, if you like. And you see that in old-fashioned TV comedies, old-fashioned comedies like All Gas and Gators. The clergy are a, a little community in themselves, and they've got people around them. And as you say, that has really gone. And maybe that means that the social skills of the priests and the clergy themselves, that they've diminished, the ones that we need so much. And there's a question of what we mean by loneliness. Thomas Wolfe, the American writer, not to be confused with Tom Wolfe, but Thomas Wolfe, the novelist, in the 1930s, said he thought actually loneliness was the central fact of the human condition. And I think we all know what he meant by that. It's something that we all experience. How central it is, I don't know. But here's something I've been thinking about over the last day or two. I find myself in a sort of mental state of mind which can't necessarily be perfectly described as lonely, but it's very akin to loneliness. It doesn't have the social pain that we're told is one of the characteristics of loneliness, perhaps the defining characteristic of loneliness, the painfulness of it all. It's what you might call a sort of zombie-like isolation, one in which you gradually cease to care about other people in the outside world. And you can reach a stage in your life, which I think I have, actually, where lockdown didn't hit me all that hard because I'd been kind of leading a lockdown existence before anyway. I don't think young people, it's awful, I've reached that stage in life now where I talk about what young people don't realise. 
but I don't think young people realize the extent to which friends and friendships disappear. Friendships are evanescent to an extraordinary degree. It seems incredible when in your 20s, the idea that you're going to lose touch with all these people, and you don't lose touch with all of them, but the idea that people come into your life and it seems a very exciting thing, a new friendship seems a novel and a precious and almost a permanent possession when you're in your 20s. And then that person will drift out. And as you get older, people will come and go. And it's like characters drifting in and out of a soap opera. You don't expect them to be there forever. And you're not necessarily that upset when they go, however attached you were to them while it was their turn, while it was their episodes. And as the series goes on, I'm going to push this metaphor far too far. It's going to really run away with me. But as the series of life goes on, there's a sense that the characters coming in and out of the soap opera increase in number and you kind of care less, unfortunately, in most cases. This has been my experience. Until you reach a point where it's almost as if human relations matter less than they once did. And as I say this to you, I'm worrying that I'm incriminating myself and people are going to think, well, that's why he's such a weirdo. But do you have any idea what I mean by that? Well, I do. And I, I, I think about that a lot myself. And you talked about those moments of the dark watches of the night. You know, the Spanish mystics talked about the dark night of the soul, you know, when you wake up at four in the morning and you think, maybe I'm going to die now alone. And indeed, one of the shocking elements of the whole COVID experience have been reports of people dying alone. And that's actually been regarded as a terrible thing throughout the centuries, because, again, if you go back through literature and biography, the deathbed was something where people were gathered around the deathbed to be with the pilgrim who was departing. As with funerals, I mean, I've known over the last year, Damien, 12, 14, maybe 16 colleagues and friends have died. Goodness. Uh, and I mean, it's partly because when I, I was a young woman in Fleet Street and I knew a lot of people who were older than I was, this would be a demographic in, I'm in my 70s, but a demographic in their 70s and 80s uh, and late 80s. And, you know, that is the, the course of nature to depart this world. Only one of the number that I'm thinking of actually had COVID. Most of the the, the rest of, of those who died, died from other illnesses, from strokes, from cardiac failure or from kidney disease, the various things that, that human flesh is heir to. But quite sadly, I've only been to one funeral. And that's because funerals are now very, very constricted. But the one funeral I went to uh, just before Christmas, I think it was. I'm losing track of time. A lovely, lovely Irishman called Homan Potterton, who was uh, the head of the National Gallery of Ireland, but who uh, more recently had lived in France. But his funeral was in Kensal Green. And it was quite small. And it was just lovely to be able to gather with a group of people that not all of whom I knew very well, but some of whom I knew, and do this Ceremonie des adieux, which is such a fundamental and natural thing for human beings to do. We've always done it. It's, it's the first thing that primitive man and woman did was to build a graveyard. 
And this is so fundamental and something you just need to do. Homan had cancer and so his death was not unexpected. It was sad that he left this world, but it was graceful to be able to say goodbye and there was beautiful music and there were beautiful tributes and a nice, he was Church of Ireland, so it was a nice old-fashioned Anglican but simple ceremony. And, you know, that was actually something very, very meaningful and something in which I felt this is what it's like to be with a community of people. And that is something you see one just doesn't experience anymore. When I think about our past lives, Damien, when we were young, of course, going to the pub, this was a very gregarious thing to do. And we drank partly to have fellowship and friends. And you went to particular pubs where you knew your mates would be. And that was all part of connecting with people. And the, the sharing of drinking was in itself a sort of linking up. Between... Both you and I, Mary, did stints as diary reporters in Fleet Street when we first arrived. And I was looking at my diaries from 1989, I think it was, 1990, when I was a young reporter on the Peter Reconnell of the Daily Telegraph. And there was something exciting going on every night, whether it was the premiere of Miss Saigon, my goodness, that's the most expensive party I've ever been to, or just abusing our expense accounts in the days when journalists had expense accounts with friends from the Peter Column. And every single night I was out, and I think I would have felt robbed if I'd spent an evening at home. And now I think to myself, if I faced that sort of engagement diary now, I'd be filled with absolute despair of having to meet all those people. Now, I don't know whether that's something about the ageing process. I'm, I'm sure it is. But... It is a little bit, Damien, and I think as we grow older, we appreciate more one-to-one or a small group. I mean, there's nothing nicer than a small little dinner party or a small little simple tea party even of three or four friends together where you can talk to people. And, of course, what's nice about not drinking is that you don't have to ring them up the next morning and apologise for all the terribly rude and unbearable things you said to them. But at the same time... I did I, that a few times, Mary, but most of the time <laughs> I was so drunk that I didn't, I didn't remember even having said rude things. And it would be later <laughs> that people would say, I don't think that that remark will be quickly forgotten, Damien. <laughs> I was thinking, what did I say? <laughs> I know it's one of the absolute formulas of my life and what inappropriate, heaven knows, I don't even want to go there. I must tell you, I had a sort of killer instinct or self-destruction instinct, which was as a young diary reporter, which got you into every smart public party in London from the Telegraph, I'd have a sort of self-destruct instinct where I'd immediately, or after a couple of drinks, that is, got over my anticipatory nerves. I'd go up to the most famous person in the room and start a conversation with them. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it really didn't work at all. And I made a complete fool of myself. Mary, you touched on something. It was a few minutes back, but it was so fascinating. I just have to tell you a story that you will know very well, but perhaps listeners don't know, which is about the deathbed of saint Therese of Lisieux. As you were saying, the deathbed was in itself a social institution in a way, a recognised drama, almost a liturgy in itself. 
And when Saint Therese was dying, obviously very young, and she'd been dying for a long time, she had consumption, didn't she? And her sanctity was so widely acknowledged that the whole convent was really organised around this young, dying nun. And so they would sit around her bed every night waiting for her to die, and it took quite a long time. But there was tremendous competition among the nuns about to whom she would speak her last words and who would get, quote, the last look. In other words, who would be the last nun that she looked at? Which is undoubtedly an example of, um, you could call it socially assisted dying, um, it's a little bit creepy, isn't it? I think that is quite operatic. Yes, it is. Yes. It's like an opera. And that's why opera, of course, in a strange way makes sense, because it does tell us some truth about the dramas of our lives, you know. And um, uh, there, is, there is an opera that features the death of nuns, uh, the Dialogue of the Carmelites by Poulenc, but the, um, the deaths are rather less sedate than those of Therese. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Well, well a, a death in opera, of course, is part of the opera scene. And I know that my late husband, when he spoke about he thought the La Boheme was the most wonderful, wonderful opera because he said to be young, to be in Paris, to be poor and to be dying of consumption, what more could you want? That's typical, Dick. That really is. <laughs> Yeah. But always in opera or in anything else, it's it's all about the interaction of people. And this is the thing that we are missing so much, that the simplest things, a cup of coffee with a friend has been banned, that the government would put out propaganda saying things like, don't kill your granny with a coffee, you know. How much more cruel to old people in old people's homes to be deprived of visits, of love, of contact. I mean, you have to die of something. And if you die of COVID, it may not be something you want to wish on someone, but is it not worse, I ask, for many older people to be totally lonely? Well, my heart freezes when I think of the possibility that my dear mother, whom you met and who was so enjoyed meeting you, died at nearly 95 in 2018. And she'd been in a nice nursing home, but the last few years were grim because she had Parkinson's and she had dementia and there's no way you can make those things nice. Though the staff did a really, really good job. And I was astonished by the almost vocational quality of their work, even if they, they weren't religious. And it wasn't easy work and it wasn't well paid. It was a private nursing home. Thank God she'd saved up enough money to pay for that. And then the thought, this horrifies my, my sister Carmen and me so much. It freezes our hearts. The thought of our mother being in that place, nice though it was up to a point, on her own and us banned from visiting her. I don't know what we would have done we would have been beside ourselves with despair and fury. We really would have been. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? Yes. Why is the government being so hardline about this? Well, I think it will take a long time to really analyse what's been going on. But I think they simply have decided that at all costs they must stop the spread of the virus. And it's not for me to say otherwise, Damien, but one of the costs quite evidently is a lot of loneliness, a lot of what young people call mental health problems, including alcoholism and including drugs. And one of the things is that people with such afflictions can't get help at the moment. You can't go to an AA meeting. You can get one online, but 
I'm not sure how helpful that is since the, the whole aspect of an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting is that you are anonymously in a, in a room with with group of other people. I would be dead if it hadn't been for, I mean, I haven't been to AA for years, but I would be dead if it hadn't been for the kindness of strangers in the rooms and the routine of meeting people you didn't know and sharing relatively intimate details of your messed up life with them. Almost the less you knew them, the kinder they were. It was a wonderful and entirely necessary experience for me. And again, the thought that a young alcoholic now seeking help can't find it by going to AA meetings, that again is very chilling. And they can't go to see a counsellor or, I mean, there's a great deal of many restrictions. And it's not surprising that reports are being published saying that there are more deaths from alcohol uh, and I imagine from drug problems as well. But I suppose loneliness, as you said at the beginning, has many forms because there's also, apart from the lockdown, there's sort of emotional lack of connection. And that can be a personality issue as much as a social issue. In one way, it's made us think about all these things much more. I didn't in recent times, of course, uh, with age, you're not going out to parties every night. And I imagine the last thing I'd want is a very noisy ambiance now because I'm more hard of hearing, which can also create a sense of isolation. But there's always been a lot going on, I think, in our lives, a lot of possibilities. In the little town I live in, in Deal, in Kent, there's a, a little theatre, there's, there's a film club, There are three or four churches, all reasonably well attended, I must say. There's a a deal history society. And there are all kinds of little soirees and get-togethers that coffee mornings that people have together or they have special interests, you know, in the Victorian society or in in book clubs. A lot of women love these book clubs where they get together to talk about a book. All these social activities which were very much part and parcel of our lives and an enriching part of our lives and very much including in all that culture and faith. And that has all, you know, it has all disappeared and it's made us think a lot about our own existential loneliness. And if we will, especially for older people, if we will recover anything of this life before we die, are we going to get back to any kind, let alone things like planning holidays with friends, going on cruises, which people like to do, and even just taking a train to Canterbury or to see a theatre. I mean, our little world has closed down. We have been through our, our dark night of the soul with this. We have. And Mary, it's time to... The government needs to be told it's time to unleash Mary Kenny back on the population because I can see we're talking via Zoom. I can see as well as here that your intellectual curiosity and the sheer delight of talking to you is undimmed. And it says something about lockdown when I say we're talking face-to-face on Zoom. This is the first face-to-face conversation I've had with anybody in a month, and I'm very glad it should be with you.